Welcome back to the MetaMinds podcast, where we help you master your mindset. My name is Dan, and I'm a fully qualified counsellor. And my name is Eamon, and I run a video production business full-time. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Benjamin Hardy with us. He is an organizational psychologist and best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work. Ben was also the number one writer on Medium.com for three years in a row and has appeared on a TED Talk with nearly one million plays. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ben, or Benjamin, whichever one you'd prefer. Whatever you guys prefer. I'm just happy to be with you guys. You guys are amazing. (laughs) So are you. So are you. So I guess the first thing is uh, we've gone through willpower doesn't work. And uh, the thing that really stood out to me was like early on in the book where uh, you kind of pointed out that if we rely solely on willpower, then we're basically setting ourselves up to fail as the world is so distracting with our phones, fast food, advertisements, and even automated environments. Um, so it, it's such a fascinating topic, but I kind of want to know why you started writing that. Like what inspired you to start writing about willpower? Yeah, brilliant question. Um, a few things. One is, is uh, first off, I grew up in a broken home. Um, my parents got divorced when I was 11 years old and the divorce was so painful. It led my father into a drug addiction and you know, when, when that kind of chaotic trauma happens. So, so there's two types of trauma. There's big T trauma, which is like when some negative event happens to you. Uh, and then you internalize it into a narrative and a story. And then there's a lower T trauma, which is where you're in a chaotic environment where you're essentially just always in fight or flight mode or, or hyper stress or survival mode. So that was me for junior high and high school was just chaotic environment. And I, I witnessed how that had an impact on my identity, my psychology, my mental health. Uh, my ability to do anything, my, uh, my uh, vision for my future, I had basically zero and barely ended up graduating high school. Um, so that was kind of, that didn't lead me to write the book, but looking back, that was pivotal. And then uh, ultimately I ended up deciding to leave that environment and I went to serve like a, a humanitarian slash church mission when I was 20 years old. And what I quickly found was, is that in a new situation, in a new context, I was able to have a new role and a new identity. Uh, and was able to have different levels of freedom. So like one of the big ideas in the book is a concept called contextual agency. It's the idea that in different situations, you have different options and different choices. And that became really apparent to me when we became a foster parent of three kids. Me and my wife, during the first year of my PhD program, she was also doing a master's in social work. We took in three foster kids and the environment that they came from was so limited. Like, you know, their parents were totally neglectful. They were out in the, like, like, They lived in a trailer basically out in the country in South Carolina. Their parents were on drugs and these kids had no options. They weren't taken to school. They didn't have healthy food. So basically in that context or in that environment, they had very limited options. You bring them into a new environment and like, you know, my wife and I are far from perfect, but we, we got these kids onto like healthy routines. We got them like eating good food, like warm food. We got them sleeping like 11 or 12 hours a night, uh, which is what kids that age need got them going to school, got them into sports. We exposed them to a ton of stuff. Like we took them to like 30 of the United States in the first year we had them just to show them. And what's amazing is, is when you change someone's context or environment, all of a sudden they have new options and new choices and new ability to be different. Um, And also me and my wife, like when we went from being, you know, having zero kids and never parenting before to having three kids hoisted upon us, like, yeah, you can imagine like, what if I gave you three kids, either of you? Like, I don't know, do either of you have kids? 
No. So can you imagine just for a second, if I just put three kids with a lot of emotional problems in your care and you still had to do what you're doing, how would you respond to that? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even like you would, you could start to think about it, but like we actually had to deal with that. Um, and I was going to school and there's a really good quote from the historian William Durant. Uh, and basically he says that the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. And that's kind of what I saw is what, what I saw was, is I was able to completely adapt to this new situation and, and I had new resources and new abilities because, you know, the situation literally required it. <laughs> um, there's a concept called hysterical strength and it's basically the idea, and I, I'm guessing you guys read this, but you know, hysterical strength is like the idea, like sometimes there's been recorded incidences where like a, a grandma or like some old woman is able to lift a car off a person if the car falls upon a person. That would not be possible. That level of strength is not just, a, the, the woman couldn't have lifted the car if it wasn't on top of a person, you know? And yeah. so what I'm pointing to is, is the idea that situations and context are a lot more powerful than just people. and you know, going back to what you were saying before, we now live in an environment and in a context that is very invasive. It's very, it's imposing upon us. We're getting, you know, these, these things are literally designed to beat our willpower. They're designed to be addictive. Um, and the food we eat, the caffeine we consume, like we are just constantly absorbing extreme levels of dopamine and things like that. And, uh, you know, the final notion I'll say, and then we can go back and forth and figure this out. A big aspect of of willpower is decision making. And because we have so many choices and options now, we have what's called decision overload. And what that creates is decision fatigue. And decision fatigue kills willpower. And so we have too many options right now. We literally have too much choice for what to do with our time, given like a million different options on the internet, a million different options for jobs and food, that very few people are, are able to make quality decisions because they don't know how to eliminate most of these bad options. So most people's willpower is fried, they're addicted, and uh, they're not aware of the power of the environment impacting them. And so I wrote this book to say, you need to control your environment or else you're screwed, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So I hope that's enough background as to why I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. So like something that I've, like a huge realization in my life is, uh, you know, attention is currency, which is kind of on the same note that, that what, what you're saying. And, you know, I think attention is the main and only currency. And if you use your attention to get money, which is another type of currency, then that's where you're putting your attention, you know? So I guess this comes back to the decision-making thing that it's like, you know, if your attention is so bombarded by everything else and everything's trying to steal your attention, which is kind of understandable how technology got to this position because everyone wants to make money. It just so happens that now the best way to make money is to you know, get people's attention and try and get them sucked in, you know, so everyone's just trying to do their best, I suppose, but we've ended up in this situation, which isn't very healthy for everybody. So now you have to take, you know, extra actions to get out of these situations. And it's, you know, as you said, everything's working against you. So it's very hard to, to do so. So just to backtrack a little bit, you know, like you're, you're an organizational psychologist, like what was the, you know, you mentioned you came from a bit of a broken home, but what was the point where, you know, you went, I have to get into this field so I can make some sort of a difference. Like what was it that, that got you into that and, and why were you motivated to get into that field? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when I was on that mission trip that I was describing, I, I read lots of psychology, lots of philosophy, spirituality, business. I just read tons of amazing books and realized I want to go into psychology, better understand people, better understand motivation, better understand uh, culture and just really how how um, human beings are shaped. And so that's, that's really what led to it. Um, 
so yeah, I just, I just really wanted to understand people from a bigger scale and how, how people can be changed, how, how training and development and how education can change people and how leadership works. So that, that's really just my mission experience led to that really. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. So like one of the main things, one of the bigger like kind of questions that, that comes up, you know, like willpower, it's like Sam Harris has written a book on it as well. I'm sure you, you've, uh, you, you, you know, understand that, but um, it's like, we were chatting about it yesterday, Dan, it's kind of like, like sometimes, you know, cause obviously environment shapes your decision and, and whether or not you're going to get to a particular place. But then like, you know, if you ask some people, like how they got out of a particular situation, be it a really bad one or something like that. They'll say, oh, I just took an action one day. You know, like they believe wholeheartedly that they were the ones that made the decision. So it's, they think that it is their willpower. But really it's like, how do we know what the actual environmental, like was there an environmental shift or was there an underlying thing? I suppose it's hard because it's, you know, different for every situation. But like hmm. a lot of people seem to think that they, that their willpower is the thing that gets them out of a situation from, you know, stopping them killing themselves or something like that. But, um, but maybe it is environment or maybe it is like another underlying thing that's pushing them forward to do a particular thing. Like, I don't know yeah. really what the question is. Well, so yeah. So here's kind of a, a thought when it comes to this. So obviously willpower is a thing. Um, the opposite of willpower is actually decision. So I was talking about decision fatigue earlier before. Decision fatigue is uh, a thing you're dealing with when you haven't yet made a decision. So you, you're actually going back and forth, weighing in your mind as to what you should do. When you have a lot of options, you're trying to make a decision and it burns out your willpower. So if you haven't made a decision yet about what you're going to do, let's just say in this case, it's eating sugar. You know, and I've mentioned this in the TED Talk, but... Um, if you haven't yet made a decision as to if you're going to eat sugar, and let's just say you're someone trying to be healthy. There's a quote from the Harvard business professor, Clayton Christensen. He said, 100% is easier than 98%. Because if you're 100% determined or decided on something, then in, in every future situation you're in, you don't have to go through decision fatigue. Like if I know that I've made a choice that I don't want to eat sugar, then when I'm at someone's house and they offer it to me, I don't need to go back and forth in my mind. I can just say, no, thank you. But if I'm only 98% decided, like I want to do this, but I'm still not sure, then in every future situation I'm in, I have to make a choice. In every future situation, I have to go through the decision fatigue of, is this one of those choices or is this one of those decisions? And what the research clearly shows is, is that in most of those situations, when you're in a decision fatigue state, because you've left the decision up to the situation, the situation will almost always win. And so the opposite of decision fatigue or the opposite of dealing with willpower is first off, you need to make a decision and then you need, you need to desi design for that decision. Um, you need to ultimately design your life to match the decision. Um, now, whether or not it takes willpower to make a decision, you guys can philosophize about that for as long as you guys want. But I think that um, when it comes to, let's just say, overcoming an addiction, you may think it's willpower, but what the research shows is that it's not willpower. You can't actually overcome an addiction by yourself in a healthy manner or in a consistent, reliable manner. Um, what you need to overcome an addiction is actually other people, which again is environment. You need, you need the support of other people. You need to actually be vulnerable. And rather than gritting your teeth and trying to do it, you need to completely relinquish control. And you need to fully own and admit that you can't do it by yourself. And you need to state that I want the help I need. And so it's actually the opposite of willpower that often will get you out of a bad situation. It's, it's admitting that willpower is the reason why you've been failing all this time. Mm. 
Yeah, wow. Um, and, and the note that you made just then about uh, being, you know, 98% certain that you're, you know, not going to have sugar in your diet. And then that 2% can creep in when you're in an environment where it's encouraged maybe that, oh, I'm just going to go and get a, a snack. Did you want to have a snack with me or whatever? And then that kind of doubt can come in. You go, oh, well, I'll just treat myself for now as such. Um, but one thing that stood out to me in the book was the whole idea of 100% on and 100% off. And I've noticed that through a few other people have also mentioned this as well. And, and Jay Shetty mentioned for his creative flow that when he's 100% on, he'll be in a creative state for a week, for example. And then when he's off, he'll have a, a, a rest period where he's learning um, and, he, and he's trying to grow through, you know, through rest, basically. And um, it kind of leads back to this whole idea of a world filled with distractions, because Eamon and I spoke about this uh, yesterday, that it's something that I struggle with as well. Like when I'm trying to rest, I've noticed I'm not 100% off because 100% off would be me putting my phone in another room and, and like completely resting and relaxing and, and being in that like rest state. Um, so so this idea of 100% off and 100% on, uh, it was also backed, you said in the book, from, uh, Will, uh, from, from Bill Gates as well, when he has like learning weeks or, or learning days. So it, it seems to it seems to to prove basically that this is a really effective way to encourage a habit, I guess. And one thing I noticed as well was you love um, journaling. So I guess like for people out there who are starting to maybe want to change their life or, or redesign their life to become like an ideal version of themselves, how how would that look for for someone trying to be a hundred percent on and a hundred percent off? How how can someone meaningfully start this transition? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I think first off, acknowledging what you just did, you acknowledged that recovery for you isn't actually full recovery, and that you're actually still kind of plugged in and thinking about it. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with thinking, like if you're even still thinking about it. So there's a concept in psychology called psychological detachment from work, just as one example. And in order to fully detach and unplug so that you can actually fully engage and replug in in the future, you can't even be thinking about it. And in order for you to not be thinking about it, you'd have to actually be doing something that's absorbing you. Like it's not just going home and being bored. It's actually doing something that absorbs your attention enough to keep you from thinking about something else because it's meaningful enough and interesting enough or that you care enough about it. Uh, So recovery isn't about just sitting down and trying your hardest not to look at your phone because you've put it in a box in the other room. It's about actually having other aspects of your life that you care enough about that you can absorb yourself in them and give, as you were talking about, your full attention to them. Like you have to have other aspects of your life that are worthwhile. Um, You know, for me, it's not very hard to go home and get fully absorbed with five kids who are trying to pull my attention (laughs) and who I then, you know, and then I need to like totally like invest in them and that I genuinely care, you know, or for me right now, like when I'm with you and I guarantee you're both totally here right now, like you're not trying to be in flow right now. You're not trying, you're not using willpower to be focused in this conversation. You're just absorbed because this is what you want to be doing. You know, like this, you're on right now. And so you can be on in different ways. I'm, what I'm saying about off is being off to what you do most of the time, which is probably work, but you should be on now and on other places, but that on in other places is a form of recovery from work. Uh, and what, you know, the research shows. I mean, often the case of let's just say fitness would be like pure recovery, like getting good sleep, like in order to get really optimal fitness, you'd, you'd hit high stress and then high recovery. Um, when it comes to creativity, 
you know, immerse yourself in incredible experiences, go travel or like go, go like do something new. Novelty is so powerful. Like novelty and intensity are two things that people do less and less of over time. Uh, it's why they plateau is because they're not doing things new. They're not having new experiences. And they're not doing things that are intense that are requiring their full attention, um, you know, or that are triggering or creating flow. So I would just say, you know, have more, do more interesting things in your off time, do things that are actually like immersive, do things that are powerful. Um, and you will find that you're incredibly recovered and satisfied when you come back to work and you will have totally new things to bring to your work rather than just the fact that you pulled yourself away from it and essentially used willpower to stay away from it. It's so real. And um, yeah, like I find that when I, whenever I have like a huge chunk of work to do, instead of sitting down and being like, I'm going to spend all day doing this thing. And then you only get two hours of it done. I go, you know what? I'm going to hang out with someone at two o'clock, go to the gym at three o'clock, hang out with someone at four o'clock. And then in my mind, I'm like, I only have this much time to get this thing done. And because I have things to look forward to that are novel and new, like I will actually be way more productive when I book more out of my day. So yeah, it's very interesting kind of what you, cause that kind of hits on that point there. So to, to go back to the like addiction thing, I know you're familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate's work. Yeah. Love his work. I actually know Gabor. Oh, awesome. Oh. Yeah. Well, maybe you can hook us up for a podcast because I'm fascinated <laughs> by his work as well. Um, but yeah, you know, to kind of hit on what you were talking, talking about there, like, you know, he says addiction is the opposite of connection. Um, and yeah, so like, you know, you mentioned like go do novel things, go do new things and that kind of thing. But for someone that's potentially less fortunate and feeling much more hopeless, you know, they're in a period in their life where they don't have other things that they can fully immerse themselves in and they don't have things, you know, so they do have more of an addictive personality and their environment kind of helps, you know, create that addictive personality, whether it's alcohol or whatever it may be like, you know, they're feeling much more hopeless. Like what are some things maybe that I, I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. And, and it just shows to me that you really know your audience and that you really care about people. Um, so to the person who, and truthfully, addiction is generally a secretive act. You know, there's a quote in Alcoholics Anonymous that you're as sick as your secrets. You know, so like usually it's something that's isolated, something that you do by yourself, you know, whether it's like porn or alcohol. I mean, yes, you could do it with various individuals, but still you're isolated, you're disconnected. Um, and, and so, yeah, I could understand why someone in that state would not want to go and do something new and novel. Um, but what, so one of the things that Gabor says that I think is really interesting is, is rather than asking why the addiction, you ask why the pain, because really addiction is just a coping mechanism. It's just a, it's, it's a solution. It's a temporary solution to handle the stresses or the anxieties or the whatever is, whatever is plaguing the person. It's a temporary solution um, to a more long-term problem. And so rather than asking why the addiction, you ask, well, what, why the pain? Like, why are you in pain right now? And usually, you know, from Gabor's work, and I actually generally agree with this, is, is that it's generally the byproduct of trauma. It's, it's the byproduct of unresolved emotional pain um, or a hardcore negative situation that they just, they're, they're not sure how to deal with. And so that's their best coping mechanism. And so one of my favorite quotes about this situation comes from uh, Peter Levine. And he wrote the book, Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. And he said that trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what you hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So it's not what happens to you. It's what you hold inside. Something happens to you and you held it inside because you didn't have an empathetic witness. You didn't have someone to support you through that 
And so, you know, you're now dealing with it by yourself and you're doing it the best you can, but the coping mechanisms aren't really the best thing you could do. So I think in that case, the two things that I find to be the most helpful, possibly the three things that are the most helpful, one is journaling, which is kind of what we brought up, but journaling about what, why the pain journaling about why you're, why, you know, whatever it was from the past or whatever it is you're dealing with, that's really, that's really harming you or, or, or hurting you, or that is difficult to deal with. Um, just by getting it out there and by facing it, you can start to actually think about it in a more conscious way. Very healthy. Like there's so much research on journaling as far as an emotional regulation technique. And really what it is, is it's learning how to handle the emotions because you, when you're in an emotionally high state or triggered or something like that, in order to deal with or hide from the emotions or not, or cope with the emotions, rather than doing it in a healthy way and understanding your emotions, you end up, you know, suppressing or, or numbing yourself. And so I think journaling is a really great way to start handling your former experiences or your current frustrations. And, um, you know, I would just say be as honest in your journal as you can. Some people that's even a freaky experience, but by just exposing yourself to something, the, the emotion starts to go away. Um, if you expose some, yourself to something long enough, the novelty goes away and it becomes just information. And really that's the goal. Whatever was the trauma, whatever was the pain, if you can remove the emotion and actually just turn it into information, then it's something you can use rather than something that's using you. So like you want to understand why has this impacted me so much the way it is? Is there different ways of viewing it? Um, that's a little, it's something you can do by yourself in a journal if you get, you know, better and better at just getting the ideas out there and thinking about it. But still, even still, it's good to have what's called an empathetic witness. It's good to actually talk about it to other people. Again, that's the connection piece. Like actually have conversations. If it needs to be a therapist, it can be a therapist. If, if it's a friend or a family member or something, go to someone and talk about, again, you're as sick as your secrets. So tell people what you're dealing with. Tell people you've been dealing with it in this particular way. The more you can be honest and transparent about what you're handling and what you're dealing with, the less it's going to plague you, the more you can then start finding solutions or the more you can start looking at it from different angles. Uh, so I would say those are two things. The third one would be probably thinking about your environment, thinking about the inputs that you're letting in, the negative influences, whether it be food, bad information, kind of becoming aware of your triggers and just realize, you know, like, if you start actually putting more positive information in your life and putting yourself even just in more positive environments, even if that's just nature, uh, and just getting that kind of flow and that kind of relaxation and just being able to breathe and being able to think differently about life. Uh, I mean, I think that those are three really powerful techniques, um, for, for getting started if you're at like a total low. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's some definitely some awesome tips for people that are, you know, struggling. And then before that, some awesome tips for people that, you know, potentially just in a life situation and they want to improve. Um, something that I would love to know is like, what are some things that you implement in your life, which, uh, you know, kind of helps your environment be optimized so that you can, you know, achieve your goals at a, at a better rate? Yeah. Uh, for me, I apply a concept that I talk about in the book called forcing functions. I think forcing functions are so powerful. So just as an example, like, you know, so like I have these two books right here, like, and you know, this personality comes out in June, you know? Um, so one of the aspects of decision fatigue is, is that as an entrepreneur, just as one example, the, the more you, the more successful you become, the more complexity you're dealing with in your life, because there's more things to do. Um, 
And so you can't really handle that complexity for too long without burning out as far as decision fatigue. There's just too many things to do as an entrepreneur. And so one of the most easy and obvious things to do is hire someone. Like, so in the case of, of us having this conversation, when it came to this book, Willpower Doesn't Work, uh, this was like two and a half years ago. I did everything by myself. If you and I were talking two and a half years ago, I would have been the one scheduling the podcast. I would have had to make those decisions. It would have had to be on my mind and my mental plate. That's decision fatigue. Uh, instead, you know, you hire someone to schedule the podcast for me and is all I have to do is click the link. I don't have to deal with the decisions. And I know that not everyone thinks that they can hire people, but when you hire a who, you know, like hire a person to handle something that's even simple, that is predictable and routine, it's an investment in yourself because it's an investment literally in your attention, as you described. And if you're someone who can make positive results, if you can focus for a few minutes, then removing the decision fatigue of all these multiple tasks that honestly you shouldn't be doing anyways, so that you can remove the decision fatigue so that you can just focus on creating or, or being, uh, it can be a million X. Um, so offloading your brain with either technology or with other people is one key. Uh, another key, and I, now I'll get to the forcing function concept. Um, embedding, embedding forcing functions is a way to create situations that force you to rise. So I used the quote from William Durant. Uh, the ability of the average person could be doubled if it was required or if the situation demanded it. So I'm in the middle of writing a book right now with Dan Sullivan. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Sullivan, but he's the founder of Strategic Coach. And he and I are, I'm writing a book with him called Who Not How. Um, and that book comes out in October. I have to be done writing that book by April 1st. It has to be completely done. And I'll just be honest with you, between us, it's nowhere near being done. But it, <laughs> No, seriously. No, but, right. but the situation demands that I do something. Like, if the timeline was three months, if it was June 1st that the book was done, then the book would become done on June 1st. It's Parkinson's law, right? Um, work fills the space you give it. The fact of the matter is the publisher demands that the book is due and done by April 1st. And so that is called a forcing function. I can't get out of that. The situation is literally requiring it, but also this is a co-authorship. This is a collaboration. So I have social pressure. It's not just me who care, who, 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 whose skin is in the game. Dan Sullivan is in the skin of the game. The publisher's skin is in the game. And so collaboration where you're doing joint ventures or projects with other people and where there's timelines where the results you produce don't only impact you, but impact other people. That's an easy and obvious way to rise to an occasion. Over the next 25 days, I'm going to write a lot of stuff and I'm going to have to produce. I have no option. Willpower is not the key here. The situation is the key. I, I, I can't not do it. I have no choice. Um, now I could just walk away and fold, but the stakes are so high that I honestly, I don't think psychologically or mentally I'll be able to do that. I think that I put myself in the situation because I wanted it. Yeah. Um, and so you can apply forcing functions in different ways. Like one example is if you want, you know, my wife and I, we've, we'd been wanting to go to a restaurant for a long time up in Chicago, really amazing restaurant. And we'd been talking about it for a few years, but then my wife just pulled the trigger. She just said, one day she just said, Ben, I booked the reservation and I bought the plane tickets. Oh, okay. I guess we're going. Forcing function. It just, you, so because intention isn't enough often. Inten you know, the, we all have good enough, we all have good intentions, but what you want to do if you're serious about something is you, you want to create a situation 
that supersedes your intention and forces you to do what you want to do anyways. That's a forcing function. One other example, my friend and I just decided like we, it was almost a year ago that we wanted to do an Ironman triathlon and uh, something I've been thinking about for a while, but we just got together and we're like, dude, should we do this? And we're like, well, the only way we'll know for sure is if we're going to do it is if we invest pretty big. So a financial investment is a huge way to get yourself committed. Research is pretty big on that. And so we, uh, we spent the 800 bucks. We signed up for the race. I took my bike and tuned it up and you know, I've probably spent like over a thousand bucks or more just signing up for this race. But what happens when you become invested is you become committed and you start then thinking about it and you start to identify with it. your identity starts to shift. And so, uh, I think the whole social pressure, the financial investment, the timelines, um, you know, collaboration, just, there's so many ways that you can create scenarios or situations that, that alleviate your worst, you know, your worst performance. Uh, if I didn't have those situations, if I didn't create those scenarios, my willpower wouldn't get me through it. I don't have enough willpower to write this book. I'll be honest with you. It's going to kill me. Like willpower isn't, isn't the, isn't the key. Mm. Um, it's literally that I have to. Um, yeah. And because I, I don't, I'm not going to call it ego, but like, I can't let these people down. Mm. Like, and so a lot of it's about having a higher cause and caring about the other people, but also, yeah, I just have to do it. Like, and I think that that's, that's a powerful thing is putting yourself in a situation where you can't go back in the book. I called a point of no return, but putting yourself in a situation. So for example, for an, a, an entrepreneur who invests a good enough, a good amount of money in, uh, in their goal where they literally have to go forward to produce a result because if they don't, the stakes are going to be quite high. And, you know, it's, it's good to put yourself in situations where you're required mm. by, by, by nature of the situation to produce a result. And then you rise to the occasion because the situation demands it. And I think that that's a more powerful way to live than just gritting your teeth and trying to, trying to do it on your own, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we've only got um, a, a few minutes of, of this podcast left, and then we'll move on to the next one. Um, but just to shift gears a little bit, Eamon and I were talking about this just before we started. Something I'm really fascinated about as well, how did the TED Talk come about? How did that actually happen? Was that Obviously, it's an invitation. It's quite a prestigious thing to uh, be involved in. But I guess we're just curious, like, how, how did that come about? Like, did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? And when that happened... Obviously, you're putting your research at the forefront then. You're putting it on, on a world stage there, which you already have through the book. Um, but I guess I'm just curious about that that process for the final final few minutes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's one of the things I discovered while blogging is, is that you can pitch yourself onto anything. Like literally, like I would invite you guys if you want to like find a way to get your like your your thoughts or things like that published on places like Forbes like there or, or like places like Huffington Post or Fast Company or whatever is big in Australia like you can you can find a way to get into any any um, situation in the case of me in this TED talk so I've actually done two TED talks the first one was I was introduced to the people in Orlando uh, who were doing it and the TED talk in that case was on family and they really liked that I had done the foster care thing um, so that one was just that someone connected me with that person. In the case of the one in Austria that you're talking about, the 100% rule one, um, the person who organizes that one happens to be like a student in one of my online courses and they're just a huge fan of my work. And so they 
tried to get me to speak at it a few years, but I just couldn't do it. And so, uh, it just happened to work the year that I did it, which was, I guess, last year in Austria. So, um, that one was, I was just, I was just invited. So both situational, really both, uh, like environmentally shifted based on like where, where you were almost. Well, one was just, I just, the guy happened to be a big fan and was in my, you know, in my like little circle, I guess you could say, I didn't know who he was, but yeah, he just was a fan and was just like, asked me to do it. So, I mean, I didn't do anything for that. I just said, yes. Uh, And the other one was that, yeah, a friend connected me to the person and I did ask. And in both cases, yeah, I had to write the TED talk. I had to give the speech, uh, although I didn't actually write either of them. Uh, And the one that you're talking about that has almost a million views, I just totally riffed that. Um, But uh yeah. I mean, everything is context. That's one thing that is true. That doesn't mean we don't make choices and that we don't exert effort, but everything, the only way that we could have this conversation is because we live in a time when this technology is available. Yes, we can both exert effort. Yes, I have to be thinking right now. Yes, you guys have to be thinking. But the fact that this conversation is occurring in the first place is because you and I both happen to live in 20, 2020. If, if you lived 40 years ago and I lived 40 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. So the point of context is, is just that context provides options. Um, and my context at that time just provide options because I had been making content for a long time and someone just who happens to organize Ted talks happened to be a big fan of my work. And but, but that said, if you want to be on a Ted talk, I would encourage you to pitch yourself onto them and eventually you can get onto one. And, mm-hmm. and there's really easy ways to figure out what, what specific ones you are looking for. You just have to do a little research and be willing to fail a few times. And uh, if you want to get that level of positioning, if you think it's useful, uh, you can absolutely do it. And I would encourage you to do so. Hmm. I suppose it kind of comes full circle. And this is where it's interesting because you mentioned that you can get yourself into any environment that you want to. And we're a big fan of the book, The Third Door by Alex Benign. I don't know if you're familiar, but um, I have read that book. But um, yeah, it's like, you know, you can get yourself into any position that you want to. And like a way that you would do that is by, you know, reframing and changing your environment and identifying with the type of person that is the type of person to do that thing. And you can do that through environment, like environmental changes, or as you said, like committing either financially or, you know, to have a particular goal, like something that actually is going to push you forward to that thing. So it's like, you know, this kind of like limitless belief kind of thing really comes back into play again. You can do anything you want, but uh, there has to be different things that you implement to, to do that. I suppose. Yeah, I would actually start with identity. And I think I go into this a lot deeper into personality, but I would start with identity and then think environment. You know, it's like, who is the person you want to become? Could be a professional speaker. It could be a professional author. It could be a world-class scientist. I would start with identity. Who's the person you want to be? Who's that future self? And then... What are the environments or the experiences that would lead you to becoming that person? Uh, Because you're not that person today. You're not that person right now. And in order to become that person, you can't just grit your teeth and do it. You actually have to be in situations that allow you to become that person. So I'd start with identity and then think in terms of maybe your own narrative. And we can go into this in the next one, but in that environment and the role you play. Um, So, but environment's essential. You can't, you can't battle against an environment if you're trying to achieve a goal that opposes your environment. Mm, absolutely. Well, yeah, that, uh, that perfectly wraps it up really nicely. So we'll um, wrap this one up and we'll jump on to the, the uh, next one on your next coming out book. So thank you very much for joining us and uh, we'll see you again in a second. Yeah.
Hopefully I said anything that makes sense. You guys are awesome though. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Great, thank you.